from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. You know, a lot of people are looking for the newest medication to help prevent or treat dementia when it's really a low-tech solution. Walk 45 minutes a day. How many of you listening are dealing with aging grandparents or helping care for aging parents? Or frankly, getting to the point ourselves when the question, how you doing today, can result in a 20-minute list of this hurts, that isn't working, and wait, what was the question again? Juggling medications, juggling doctors, finding a path to the best quality of life while dealing with an ever-growing list of health issues. We all have the opportunity now to live longer, but what we all want is to make sure that we and our loved ones live better. There are some doctors who have studied and specialized in geriatric medicine. And today, one such angel joins us from one of the country's most highly regarded health institutions, Cedars-Sinai in Beverly Hills. Sometimes we focus on subjects that some of us will be dealing with. Well, today we guarantee you that all of us will be dealing with aging. This is medicine we're still practicing. I'm Bill Curtis. And first, of course, my co-host, the quadruple board certified doctor of internal medicine, pulmonary disease, critical care, and neurocritical care, and my very best friend, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Stephen? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. Well, this is a subject that, well, I'm going to be paying attention today. You and I are both aging rapidly, so we hope to get a lot of good information. Maybe too fast. Well, our special guest, Dr. Sonia Rosen. Dr. Sonia Rosen is Chief of Geriatric Medicine and Medical Director of Geriatrics at Cedars-Sinai. She's also the professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, board certified in geriatric medicine, internal medicine, and hospice palliative care. Welcome, Dr. Rosen. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to participate and talk with both of you today. So I wonder if we could get into what did you uniquely study for geriatrics and what do you now treat that's different in older patients than younger ones? So different about geriatrics is really this atypical presentation of disease. It's sort of like internal medicine plus. Older people present differently. An older person can have pneumonia and might not have a cough, might not have a true fever because older person's immune systems are different and many are essentially immunocompromised. And so an older, frail older person with a pneumonia might just be tired. They might have a little bit of a left shift on their labs, on their on their white blood cell count, but they might not have a truly elevated white blood cell count. And they might just have a low-grade temperature if they have a pneumonia because they have a lower basal body temperature to begin with. They don't have much of an immune response. That's just one example, sort of the atypical presentation of disease in older people. Does that make diagnosis more difficult in older people? Yeah, it definitely does. It makes it more challenging. And I think that was one of the main things that I was drawn to in geriatric medicine was really that extra challenge of atypical presentation of disease. You know, it's interesting in my world, I do practice some internal medicine just because some of the pulmonary patients that we see in the office are asking for me to be their internist at times. And certainly in the ICU, 50% of our patients are elderly. And yet, how do we integrate your specialty with what I do on a day-to-day basis? All the internists I know are not giving up their elderly patients to, to geriatricians. And yet, should they be? Or what should we be doing to capitalize on your training? to better understand and treat our patients. 
first, I'll just put this in context of how many older persons there are in the United States. We have currently 35 million people over the age of 65, and that's going to more than double in less than a decade to more than 70 million. But basically, the first answer to your question is no way would we want uh, patients to, you know, change from their internist or internist to not take care of their older patients. Number one, it wouldn't be possible because there aren't enough geriatricians. And number two, it wouldn't be right because internists or family medicine doctors, primary care physicians are going to take care of the majority of older patients. Really, in geriatrics nationally, what we're looking at is implementing best practices and geriatric models of care in health systems to optimally care for this aging patient population. So this is more of an epidemiologic endeavor as opposed to a case-by-case interaction when it comes to community-based medicine? really depends. In a health system that's organized, that has population health strategies, there's a lot of opportunities to implement geriatric models of care. In other health systems and or in a large tertiary academic health system, you might have a geriatrician who can see a patient for a consult for geriatric syndrome, such as dementia, delirium, falls, functional decline, So it really depends on the setting. You know, an internist in private practice might refer his or her patient to a geriatrician for a consult. He or she might take a course in sort of a geriatric primer to have more skills in caring for and evaluating one of these geriatric syndromes. So there's a lot of options. Dr. Rosen, have you been brought in as a specialist by an internist? Because I I hate to bring up a challenging situation, but I've not met a lot of doctors who would be big on basically transferring their patients to other doctors as they get older. Yeah. Most of the time, the referrals that I get from other physicians are consults. You know, typically a consult will be for any number of geriatric syndromes. As I mentioned, functional decline, frailty, falls is a really common one, osteoporosis, delirium, and dementia. And a lot of the time, it's sort of a combination of things where a person might be declining. They might have had a hospitalization and had a protracted delirium afterward, and they're just not quite themselves, and they want someone to look at the whole picture. But that's really a consult for that problem, and the patient stays with their primary care physician, and I'll see them for that geriatric syndrome, and they'll continue seeing their primary physician. You know, I've always said to my patients, you know, the best way to live a long life is to choose your parents very carefully. But aside from genetics, what can the rest of us do truly to try to reach that new benchmark that everyone's talking about, that everybody is hoping to live beyond, you know, 100 and with a good quality of life? I don't have the complete answer to that question. I know that there are things that we can do that help keep us healthy for as long as possible. But you're right, it's your parents. And so genetics is, you know, the most important thing in terms of being a prognostic indicator for future disease state and life expectancy. 
But one thing that helps prevent and helps treat and helps delay all of these things is exercise. And so we really keep coming back to the magic of exercise. And it's not really being any particular weight or eating any particular diet, but it's really moving your body. There's this expression, use it or lose it. And I talk with my patients about that all the time because movement is just so key. One of the most crippling things when people get older is the stiffness of arthritis and functional issues with gait and balance. Movement, walking helps prevent that. Exercise is actually the only evidence-based intervention to help prevent dementia. Really? Right. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people are looking for the newest medication to help prevent or treat dementia when it's really a low-tech solution. Walk 45 minutes a day. Let me ask you this, because part of our goal on this show is to debunk a lot of rhetoric that's out there and a lot of commercialism that tend to lead the public down the wrong path. So looking at all the, the marketing that's out there, all of the supplements that might be on the market to try to improve memory, is there any benefit to that? Or is this leading patients to buy things that they really don't need? What it comes down to is, has it been proven in randomized double-blind controlled trials? And if not, we really don't have evidence to support it. So there's a lot of studies that are not the most rigorous studies that might show some benefit. And that's where a lot of these ideas about different supplements come from. And supplements are also, you know, billion-dollar industry too. And so there's a lot of factors. And people, just as you said, want something that's going to help. What I tell patients is supplements aren't necessarily regulated by the FDA. We don't know what's in them. If patients choose to use them, it's sort of doing it at their own risk. I think reviewing it with their physician is really important in case they're on other medications that the supplement could potentially interact with but they're not recommendations. Let's get back to what you did recommend because I don't want to let that go by lightly. You talked about exercise. Yes. And you talked about 45 minutes of walking a day. Yes. Okay. So I want to know a couple of things. First of all, when you say exercise of 45 minutes a day, are you talking about mild walking? Are you looking for aerobic exercise? Are you looking for raised heart rates? So it really depends because not all of my patients can walk. And so it really depends on what they can do. For example, I have a lot of patients that are able to sit in a chair and do the arthritis for exercise class from their chair. We offer this now on Zoom since since the pandemic uh, started. And so it just depends. I don't mandate that exercise has to be 45 minutes. You know, the goal per week is 150 to 200 minutes of exercise. Ideally, you should raise your heart rate and break a sweat, but whatever you can do is going to help you. And so it's really what you can do, you know, what you're capable of, and then trying to increase that a little bit every week. Dr. Rosen, what has been a reliable, I don't want to say trick, but something that works that helps you convince your patients to exercise? Use it or lose it is pretty effective. You have to use your body because every day you don't use your body, your body gets stiffer and weaker. 
actually lying in bed for one day, you can lose up to 2% of your muscle mass in your legs, which is why a lot of the time when people are in the hospital or in the ICU and they haven't been out of bed for a number of days because they've been so sick, it's really hard for them to walk and they have to go to a rehab before they go home. So really the empowering patients to know that it's up to them to use their bodies so that they can keep their bodies strong and that there's a lot of different types of exercise that they can do. And it doesn't require going to the gym. You can just go on a walk. You can go on a pool. You can do videos at home. We actually received a grant from the AARP Foundation to help combat social isolation and loneliness in older people. Is that the leap? That's leap. leap. Yeah, that's leveraging exercise to age in place. And we hypothesize that by bringing people together in classes that have already been proven to help prevent falls, so this is like arthritis for exercise, Tai Chi, enhanced fitness, that by bringing them together, we would help combat social isolation and loneliness. And we, in fact, were able to prove just that, that coming together in these evidence-based classes helps decrease risk of falls and also helps reduce social isolation and loneliness and helps people develop meaningful connections. But the really interesting thing about this program was that we utilized a health coach. So when you were asking kind of like, how do I motivate patients? The health coach is really key because a lot of people don't want to go to the gym. Like the thought of exercise is just, they're turned off. And the health coach is able to connect the patient to the right or community member. It doesn't have to be a patient to the right class. So are you interested in Tai Chi? Are you interested in something more rigorous? What type of class are you interested in? What type of instructor? And that personal connection and matching the patient to the right class in the right area when we were having them in person, or now I'm virtually helping teach them how to get on Zoom, that's that personal connection that really helps them. So I can't really credit myself with being able to get all of my patients exercising. I really get help from a health coach. So I think that's actually really important. So I'm sure lots of our listeners are in a position that I spent my last five years or so in where you're basically caring for an elderly patient. I wanted to kind of jump into some of the more difficult issues that we as your patients or maybe your advocates run into when we want to get like our parents or our grandparents to work with a specialist like yourself. Because sometimes it can be hard to get, you know, mom or dad to leave the doctor that they've been going to for 10 or 20 years and move to someone who is actually more studied and practiced in dealing with the unique aspects of an aged patient. From a psychological basis, how do we get our parents to move in that direction if we think it's necessary? Yeah, I think that that does happen. It's not uncommon and it's helpful to describe a geriatrician just as we are, which is we're specialists in internal medicine, similar to a cardiologist and a pulmonologist being a specialist. So we have specialty training and expertise in evaluating and treating geriatric syndromes. And so by seeing a geriatrician in no way means that they have to leave the primary care physician that they love, nor should they. It's just really a consultative evaluation of the patient. So it's only going to enhance their care and that the geriatrician will work in conjunction with their primary care physician to improve their health. 
Like when an internist will send somebody to a cardiologist for that specialized service, they may say, hey, let's have the gerontologist also weigh in and see what she or he could add to your regimen. And then you'll come back to me and we'll implement it and monitor it. Exactly. So, Dr. Rosen, how's it going for you with electronic medical records, your ability to really know all the medications that a patient of yours, whether it's a consult or maybe someone who's moved over to you, do you feel like you have all the information that you need? I can tell you from a perspective of a kid who's trying to take care of mom or dad, that was a real challenge, mixing medications. Medications tended to have different side effects, and maybe they didn't work so well with other medications. How are you dealing with challenges like that? Polypharmacy, which is what you're talking about, so being on multiple medications is so common. I mean, so much so that the average number of medications an older patient is on is 15. So when you take into account the drug-drug interactions, the drug-disease interactions, and then the risk of adverse drug events, I mean, you really have a huge potential disaster on your hands when people are seeing multiple doctors and there's no one person sort of managing all of the medications. So as geriatricians, we really spend a considerable amount of time during the visit on reviewing those medications. And we have the good fortune in our practice of having a geriatric pharmacist as an integral part of our practice. So in patients who really have complex medication regimens or any number of things that you just mentioned are going on, the geriatric pharmacist can take the time and sit with them. And now now that telehealth is so accessible, we or the geriatric pharmacist will often do it on video. So when we see the medications at home, we learn even more. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be back in a minute with Dr. Sonia Rosen. Best travel experiences are more than just vacations. They shape who we are, and they bring us closer to the people and places we love. This is the magic of travel. I'm Bruce Wallen, and in my 20 plus years as an editor and writer, I've covered the world's most extraordinary travel experiences for places like Rob Report, National Geographic, and Departures, and I've met some incredible people along the way. The people who make that magic happen. For the first time, I'm inviting you to join me in a little-known world of luxury travel innovators, connoisseurs, and tastemakers, an exclusive group of industry leaders with a passion for the very best of travel. With every episode of Travel That Matters, you'll get access to insider knowledge, secret getaways, unforgettable luxury hotels, and one-of-a-kind travel experiences to expand what you thought was possible. Like venturing into the jungle and coming face-to-face with rare wildlife. The experience that we had lives within my heart. I don't think I'll ever leave those incredible moments, those gentle giants all around us. Or paying for an extravagant vacation and having no idea what you're in for. They never know where they're going. It almost doesn't matter, you know, whether you take people to Jungle Desert Mountain. It's what happens when you're there that's important. Set off for adventure every other week with Travel That Matters. Each episode is packed with stories to get you dreaming about your next trip and expert advice to help make it happen. 
Open the door to extraordinary experiences where every minute carries meaning and every moment brims with wonder. The power of travel is huge. It changes people's lives. This is why we travel. This is travel that matters. And we're back with Dr. Sonia Rosen. Dr. Rosen, I wanted to get back to our chat about polypharmacy and how complicated it can be for patients and doctors. You know, I know from my experience dealing with my dad when he was prescribed 20-some-odd medications at once, some of them turned out to interact with each other. And I know, Dr. Steve, this is frustrating you as well. And in the 21st century, have we done anything technologically that can actually help sort this out. You would think this should be something very simple to to deal with, and yet it seems like we're still running up against this wall on a daily basis. I'm going to say not enough. There's definitely a lot of progress from the time I started my career and everything was on paper (laughs) um, to the electronic medical record where at least I can see everything that's been prescribed within my health system. And then if I take a couple extra steps, I can see what other health systems that are on that same electronic medical record have prescribed for my patient. There's something called the CURES database where I can see if my patient's been prescribed any controlled substance. Substances, but it's you know not one-stop shopping. I mean, it takes a number of steps to find that, and it's not 100% because there are plenty of physicians and providers prescribing that aren't in that centralized system where they're using their own centralized system. So it's a very imperfect system. And again, that's why spending the low-tech old-fashioned time of just going through each medication and making sure I, as the provider, know everything that the patient is taking is key. And we don't always do that successfully in the office. We often, as I said, need to have that video visit at home or have the patient put everything in the bag and bring it in. And you hope they brought everything in from the medicine cabinet. But it's definitely imperfect. And it's very time consuming. And, you know, it's the reason we try to de-prescribe. We try to eliminate unnecessary medications because the more medications a person takes, if they're not absolutely necessary, the more likely there will be errors and adverse events. You know, I know that we have listeners that even some that are friends of mine who are in the business of investing in companies and technology companies. And come on, guys, it's getting frustrating for us that we don't have a system by IBM Watson or artificial intelligence that you put all the medications into a computer program and the computer program should have to learn maybe 50,000 different configurations. But for a computer, for artificial intelligence, that's easy. We have to get to the point where every doctor is putting the set of medications into a system, and it's a no-brainer. I think you're right, and I I hope there's someone listening who's going to take this on. On top of that, the formularies for patients' insurance changes often every year. So patients might have two of the same medicine, but they now have two different names. And if that isn't confusing, I don't know what is. So it's very, very complex. Let me ask you a question specifically about that, actually, because I think it's it's a very important point. A lot of times we're making decisions for our patients based on economics. 
There may be a medication that you want your patient to have because it has the latest, it represents the latest iteration of that particular item, which is, has a better side effect profile or whatnot. But because the insurance company is not going to pay for that, you sort of feel obligated to use a medication that may not be as advantageous. How is that impacting your patient care, especially in the fragile geriatric population? Are you running up against this a lot more than, than the rest of us are? Definitely that happens. And you know, I feel a little spoiled from having a geriatric pharmacist in my practice because she does help get prior authorizations through in terms of explaining that this medication has a better side effect profile for this patient. I really make every effort to make sure that the medication that the patient's on is the right one and has the least side effects. And so, you know, there are ways to do it, you know, with that prior authorization process, but it's work. It's definitely work. And that's where having supportive staff and a multidisciplinary team really helps. So the issue that comes up in clinical practice a lot that, that I found is elderly patients may be declining a bit, and it may not be safe for them to be home alone. Is there an actual rating scale that the public can use to actually determine if their loved one is safe to be independent and actually have an easier conversation with their loved one? So functional status is divided into two main groups, basic activities of daily living. So that's the ability to get yourself out of bed, go to the bathroom, bathe yourself, get yourself dressed, transfer, and go to the bathroom. And then the other group is the instrumental activities of daily living. And those are the things that are more complex. So one way to look at it is children can do your basic activities of daily living, but to go to college, you have to be able to do your instrumental activities of daily living. And that's, you have to be able to shop. You have to be able to prepare your own food, pay your bills, take your own medications and get to the store. You have to be able to transport yourself places. And so you can live alone if you're independent in all of your basic activities of daily living and your instrumental activities of daily living. If you need some help with some of your instrumental activities of daily living, let's say you need someone to help put the pills in a pillbox for you, you need someone to get the medications, help go shopping, maybe help you cook, you could potentially still live alone at home, but you need some help. And that might be in the form of a housekeeper or a family member or a home health nurse that helps with some of those types of things. But if you're dependent in your basic activities of daily living, you can't get out of bed without help, can't get to the bathroom without help, you really can't safely live alone at home. And so again, a lot of what we do, and actually that's sort of the geriatric mantra is, what is the patient's functional status? That's probably the most important thing to us because that tells us exactly what the patient's situation is. Are they safe in their current environment? What are they going to need when they leave the office? And I'll give you a specific example of that. If I give a patient a prescription, but they don't have a way to fill the prescription or they don't understand how to take the prescription, I didn't help them. And that's why I have to know what their functional status is. And so definitely, if you're kind of struggling with that, seeing a geriatrician can help. Social workers are also great. Case managers are great at helping sort those types of things out. But those skills definitely exist. That doesn't mean the conversations aren't difficult. And that doesn't mean people aren't in denial or just want to keep living their lives the way they, they are. And, you know, 
it's not always a perfect solution, right? Free will, independence, you, you, it's your life. You, you get to live it as you want to. But we just try to support people the best we can so that they're as safe as possible. Okay, I've got three quick lightning round questions. The answers to these questions are basically one-word questions, and the, the answers are like a sentence or two. Teeth. Teeth are really important. Dental health is really often neglected, and part of that is because dental, you know, Medicare doesn't cover dental care. But as a lung specialist, I need to strongly reinforce that, that the dental issues often lead to pneumonias. And so they come to my, my office many times. Yeah. So as teeth rot, it creates pneumonia? Well, it's the bacteria that they wind up aspirating. You have a lot of bacteria build up on your teeth. A lot of times, pneumonia, most pneumonias actually in the community come from your own bacteria. So if you have a tremendous amount of bacteria and you're having some aspiration, even small amounts, what we call micro aspiration into the lungs, if your immune system is compromised at any given time, that can actually progress to a pneumonia. Okay. Hearing. Hearing is very important. And that's another challenge because hearing aids are not always covered by insurance. People are often reluctant to get their hearing tested. If you yourself as a patient think that your hearing is not as good as it should be, that means you probably have some hearing impairment and you should tell your doctor because number one, you might have earwax and that could be taken out and your hearing will be better. Number two, you should get your hearing tested. Whether or not you're going to get hearing aids, you should still get your hearing tested. And the hearing test is covered by Medicare. And is there a direct impact on cognition if you have diminished hearing? Yeah. So any sensory impairment negatively impacts cognition. So both hearing impairment and vision impairment impact cognition. Because if you can't hear what someone told you, you're not going to remember it. Eating differently when older. Yes. So the swallowing muscles can get weaker and that can be compounded by certain disease states like, for example, Parkinson's or having had a stroke. So if you're having issues with swallowing or you feel the food getting stuck, tell your physician so that you can be evaluated and make sure that you're safe. There isn't something that can be intervened upon. And, you know, if you need a special diet of some sort, so definitely tell your physician. It's common with aging, but it's not normal. Sleep apnea. I'm going to let Dr. Tabak take that. <laughs> Actually, sleep apnea is more common as we get older. And one of the reasons is because we tend to put on more weight as we get older. So it, it becomes a very significant problem amongst aging. Sleep in general becomes a problem. And I'm going to turf that back to Dr. Rosen, not sleep apnea. But what about sleep and sleep architecture and the patients? I mean, I've had some patients in there in their 90s that sleep 12 hours a night. And, you know, everyone is so jealous. But the vast majority of my patients say, I can only sleep four hours. What can I do? I need a sleeping pill. Basically, really try to avoid anything to put you to sleep because any medication that puts you to sleep crosses blood-brain barrier and does affect your brain. And so a lot of the time, perception of not sleeping is different than you know not sleeping. And as long as patients have energy and are able to complete what they need to do during the day, they might be sleeping enough. Certainly a sleep study is going to help explain that, but really try to encourage people not to use sleeping aids because they affect the brain. Interesting. Okay. How about skin dermatology? 
Well, it's really important if you've had a history of skin cancers to see the dermatologist regularly, usually every six months. Is there a difference in blood pressure issues when you get older? Well, there is, but blood pressure, high blood pressure still needs to be treated. And there's confusion about that. And I'll, I will often see older patients and their blood pressure has been undertreated because they're older. You know, sometimes providers think that it's okay for an older patient to have higher blood pressure because if it's lower, they could fall. And that really depends. Certainly, if a patient has blood pressure that's too low and they've got a history of orthostatic hypotension, you want to let their blood pressure be a little bit higher. But if that's not the case, you really want to optimally control blood pressure. So it's, again, all individualized decision-making. Tell us something we don't know about getting older. I think one thing I want to make sure to share is that the hallmark of age-friendly care or being an age-friendly health system incorporates sort of the four M's of caring for older patients, and that's what matters most. Patients' mentation, so screening for dementia and delirium, medications, reviewing all of their medications, everything we talked about today, and mobility, assessing patients' gait and balance and risk for falls. And so to really optimally care for your patients, no matter what specialty you're in, if you're taking care of older patients, you want to make sure to include those four M's of age-friendly care. Okay. Dr. Sonia Rosen, thank you for joining us today. This was really informative. I know we've all got to deal with it with our parents, our grandparents, and someday ourselves. That does it for us today. Dr. Stephen Tabak, thank you as well for joining us. We're Still Practicing is produced, edited, and mastered by A.J. Mosley. The music for We're Still Practicing is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And don't forget to hit that follow button so you don't have to hunt around for our next episode. We'll catch you next time, everybody. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.